today we're going to be talking about what it means to be a disciple uh, because the church is a community of disciples. That's what the church is. We are a community of disciples. Uh, we've learned uh, in the last few weeks that the church uh, is missional. It's a, it's a missional gathering. It's a gathering of people who take ownership of their mission field. We've learned all kinds of different things about the church. And today we're focusing on the third part of our mission statement, which is up here uh, on this banner, uh, which is to um, live out our faith. To live out our faith. So it goes from just a, a head knowledge of believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior to following Him, right? He's not just our teacher. He's not just some rabbi who gives us some philosophy to live by, but He's actually a friend. He's a friend to us. He's actually our Lord, our Master. And so we're actually to obey Him. We're to follow Him. So He's our leader, right? And he's not just my leader, he's your leader. He's everyone's leader who, who is a Christian. And so that's what we're learning today. We have talked about how our mission statement is pulled from really two things in the New Testament. And we find these two things in the book of Matthew. But here's our, here's our mission statement, to lean into the lives of people, to look up to God in worship and devotion, and to live out our faith in Jesus by making disciples. We have to live out our faith. So the great commandment found in Matthew 22, 36-39, that's the first part of our mission statement. We looked at last week, it's the, it's the vertical relationship that we have with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first part of that great commandment. And then Jesus says in the second greatest commandment is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So that's where the two parts of first two bullet points of our mission statement come from. To love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of times we, we focus on just the recipients of our love, God and others. And a lot of churches say, this is what our church is all about. Loving God, loving other people. That's true, but that's not all that's here. If you see the language that Matthew uses. Notice what he says. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Say it with me, in all of your soul and with all of your mind. See how it's personalized there? And love whose neighbor? Your neighbor. Jesus is saying you have, you have a neighbor. You have a personal God. You have a heart. You have a soul. You have a mind. It's yours. This is a stewardship. This is a relational thing. So it's not just about loving God and loving other people. That's just kind of philosophical thinking. Well, this is what I should be doing. But no, it's realizing that you love the Lord, your God, because He's your God. He's personal. He's revealed Himself to you. So even in the great commandment, there's a sense of ownership. God has revealed Himself to you in a way that demands a response from you. He has placed you in a particular place at a particular time time 
to live within a particular community of, of humanity, of human beings, of other people like you who are like sheep. <laughs> Stinky, smelly, weird. Why has He done this? So that you can reflect and communicate the love of God. He's put you in this place at this time to reflect love toward Him. Sometimes you ever wonder, God, why did you place me in this century, in this decade? It is hard to be a Christian now. You might think it might have been easier 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Some people say, I'm an old soul. Any old souls in here? Like, I like the music of years gone by. I like the style of dress. I like the values. I like the cars. Everything. I was born in the wrong time. No, you weren't. God put you here in this place, at this time, for a purpose. He is your God, and this is your community. You live your life before the eyes of two distinct audiences, God and humanity. And then the second part, the Great Commission. So we have the Great Commandment, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor, and then the Great Commission, which is found in Matthew 28, 19-20. This is after, after Jesus' resurrection. He appears to His disciples. He's talking to them and He says to them, after His resurrection, He has all authority. All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. He gives a command. This is not the great suggestion. Right? This is the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. So this is the Great Commission. The Great Commission is about making disciples. It is intentional in the same way that the Great Commandment is intentional. And it's personal. Jesus says, I am your Lord. I have saved you from your sin. Now go and do my work. That's what discipleship is. So when he talks to his disciples, he talks to them as not just people who have come into a room, you know, to listen to a rabbi, give a lesson. And he talks to them as people who are going to follow in his steps. The Apostle Paul literally says to the church at Thessalonica and Colossae, you have, became, have become imitators of Christ. The Greek word that's used there is mimetai. We use it today in the English language to mimic. What does it mean when somebody mimics you? You ever have a younger brother or sister who gets on your nerves because they copy you all the time? Like, stop copying me. Right? Paul says it's a good thing for you to copy Mature and growing Christians. It's a good thing for you to mime Christ, to mimic Christ. That's what a disciple does. And so the world doesn't happen to the church because this is purposeful. This is intentional. This is not passive. The world doesn't happen to the church. The church happens to the world. We're on the offense, not on the defense. Sometimes we feel like we're on defense. But Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You've heard me say this many times. I'm not the only one. Most people who preach that passage on the gates of hell will point out that gates 
are things that are defensive tools. You'll never see people storming a city, an army that's storming a city, and as they're coming towards the wall, they have gates in their hands. Nobody has gates on offense. They have stuff that's going to destroy the gate, right? Something that's going to penetrate the gate. Things that are going to go over the wall and destroy the city. So Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church because my church is on the move. We don't barricade ourselves from the world and protect ourselves from the world. No, we penetrate light into darkness. We looked at that concept a couple weeks ago to be salt and light. We lean into the world. We intersect people where they are. This is what it means. The great commandment, the great commission. He says, go and make disciples. Jesus commanded His disciples to make disciples. And as the disciples made other disciples, the church was born and the church grew. Not just in number, but the members of the church grew spiritually. The church became a community of disciples and that's what the church is to be today. To be a community of disciples. Members in this community, in the early church community, members of that community were distinct from your average everyday member of the community at large. To be a disciple of Christ was not to be a Roman citizen. Just like today, to be a disciple of Jesus is not to be an American citizen or to be Republican or Democrat or whatever. To be a member of the body of Christ is a distinct identity that is different from all other identities. Members in this community should be distinct from those outside the community. So what is a disciple of Christ? We're going to give a, a definition that I hope is helpful and we're just going to kind of break this down and look at what the Word of God says about this. A disciple is a born-again believer who is following Jesus. First of all, the Bible says that a disciple of Jesus is a born-again believer. That is something supernatural has happened in their life. They're not the same as they used to be. They're a born-again believer who's following Jesus with God's holy people. Okay? And then thirdly, with souls and eternity in mind. So it's a new mindset for the disciple of Jesus Christ. We think differently than we used to. And we think differently than other people around us. Okay? So those three things are what we're going to look at this morning. First of all, a born-again believer who is following Jesus. In John chapter 3, if you'll take your Bible and open up to John 3, we're introduced to a man named Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus. Now, he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees were always trying to trick Jesus to, to get him caught in a, in a lie or a blasphemy. They were, the, they were the lawyers. They were the experts of the law. And so this Pharisee is curious about Jesus, but he doesn't want anybody to know. Probably that he wants to know about Jesus. So he slips out into the night and he finds Jesus. 
And the Bible says that he asked Jesus a question. First of all, he addresses Jesus as rabbi, teacher. He doesn't address him as Lord. He addresses him as teacher. He says, we know, this is in verse 2, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus says in verse 3, he answers to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again. Now Nicodemus wonders, what does this even mean? How, how, how can a person physically be born again? This doesn't make sense. So what Jesus was getting at, as he explains in verse 5 and 6, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Do not marvel, he says, at these things. There's a spiritual element. There's a, a new birth that must happen. He says to Nicodemus. Disciples. Now Nicodemus was not a disciple of Jesus, but he could have been. He could have become a disciple of Jesus. But we know he's on the wrong path when he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi. Because he's just considering Jesus a, a very good teacher that God has shown some special favor to. And Jesus says, you must be born again to see the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not something that you can just learn, like riding a bike. You must be transformed. And that transformation comes as you, as you meet Christ, as you learn about Christ, as you're exposed to the gospel and you hear the good news. But before you become a member of the community of disciples, before you become a disciple, you must be made new. You must be born again. Rubbing shoulders with Christians doesn't make you a disciple. It doesn't make you a child of God. It doesn't make us born again. You must surrender your life to Christ as Lord and Savior. You must accept the gospel. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess your sins, and you don't hide your sins from God, but you confess them to God, and say, Lord, forgive me. I believe in Jesus. He will forgive you, the Bible says. And you will be saved. And you can be a disciple of Christ. Romans 10. Paul uses that word saved. Saved. How is it that someone can be saved? Jesus uses the terminology born again here in John 3. But as we move throughout the New Testament, the concept becomes shared with other people that you, you must be saved. To be born again means to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from my sin? Saved from hell? A real place of eternal separation from God? A place of conscience existence? Of torment? Absent from the love of God and the presence of God? Saved from your sin? Saved from hell? Saved from eternity away from your Creator. So Paul says in Romans 10, how is it that someone can be saved? He says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. He asks, how will... Someone believe in the Lord 
Or how will they call upon Him if they've not believed in Him first? How will they believe in Him if they've not heard the good news first? And how will they hear unless somebody tells them? So we become a disciple of Jesus Christ by being born again, by being saved. We're saved because we believe. We believe because we've heard the good news. We're not just believers in anything. We're believers in something. It's an objective truth. God says, this is who you are. This is what I've done for you. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you have faith? The disciple starts as a born-again believer who is following Jesus. Acts chapter 2 Mike has already shared with us parts of this passage in Acts chapter 2, the life of the early church. Mike read about the activities of all of those. There were thousands, the Bible said. In verse 41, Acts chapter 2, those who had received His word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Those souls that were added to the body, the Bible says in verse 42 through 47, which Mike read earlier, those souls came together, dedicated themselves to one another like a family. They lived together. They shared meals together. They worshiped together. They supported one another. They prayed for one another. They submitted themselves to the teaching of the leaders. Those were the apostles. And then later, pastors, or bishops, or elders. They devoted themselves to prayer, the Bible says, in the breaking of bread. But before that happened, before they joined that community, they were born again. Look at just a few verses before that. Starting in verse 36, Peter preached this very powerful message where he basically said, Y'all all killed Jesus. <laughs> It's your fault. You nailed Him to a cross. His blood is on your hands. The Bible says that when all the house of Israel heard this, when they heard this, all those people hearing this, verse 37 says, they were pierced to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? That's what a, the process of being born again looks like. The Word of God comes. It might come from a preacher like me preaching a message on Sunday morning. It might come from a friend or a parent or a child who says... To you. Man, here's the truth. This is how much God loves you. This is what He's done for you. And as you hear that message, and as you marinate on it, and the Holy Spirit starts to speak to you, and at the same time the Holy Spirit illuminates you and opens your eyes to see it as truth, and to agree with God that you need Christ to save you from your sins. And you cry out. You inquire. You ask. Maybe you ask God directly at that time. Maybe you ask your friend or family member, so what do I do now? What do I do? Believe. Repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ. Confess. Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. That's what baptism is. Do you know that? It's part of that confessing with your mouth. You're saying to the world visually, this is who I am. The old me is dead. I have been buried with Christ. 
He was crucified for me in my place, and now I'm a new creature. I've been born again. That's what baptism is a picture of. As you go down into the water, you're saying to everybody watching, there's a new me. And this is significant of the new me. It's not me rededicating myself, trying to do better, starting over with a blank sheet of paper. I think I can do better the second time around. Sometimes that's the way we treat baptism. That's not it at all. It's not me part two. It's Christ in me part one. And forever. And you can't lose that salvation. Do you know why? Because you didn't gain it in the first place. He gained it for you. He died in your place for you. Disciples are born again believers who follow Jesus. They repented. They were baptized. Peter says, repent, be baptized. And then he says in verse 40, he kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Come out of the life you were living. You identified with that community, the community of the world that has a whole other set of values than the kingdom of God in Christ. The kingdom of the world says, look out for number one. The kingdom of Christ says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Completely different set of values. The values of the world say, live for today. Get all you can today. That's not what the kingdom of God values at all. It's lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth doesn't destroy, where rust doesn't break down, and thieves can't take in and break in and take it. So a born-again believer who is following Jesus. Secondly, a disciple is someone who is doing this, who is following Jesus with God's holy people. What do we mean by holy? We mean set apart, consecrated. Think what you will about the church and about the many expressions of the Christian church throughout the ages. It's full of people. Always has been. People sin. People fail. People fall. People let you down. So the church will always do that. Always. This side of heaven because we are a community of failures. So what does it mean to be holy? It means to value the things that God values. To realize that you've been set apart. And not just set apart as an individual, but set apart as part of a new community. A new community. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to see this. And we've touched on this before. We teach this in our new members class. This is an interesting example of the ins and outs of church membership. What does the Bible really say about being a member anyway? Does the Bible talk about individual Christians as being members of the church? It absolutely does. Especially in 1 Corinthians chapters 11, 12, and 13. You are a member of the body. The Bible knows nothing of individualistic Lone Ranger Christians. You were created, you were born again to walk with Jesus with a church family. And if it's not here, that's okay. But it needs to be somewhere. It needs to be with someone. It needs to be with a church family. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a situation in the church in Corinth where the church is unwilling to judge sin. And Paul employs all of this in and out language so that they and so that we can understand 
that the church community is distinct. It's different. And we have to treat relationships within this community differently. So whereas you might have someone in your community who is living in sin and you're like, whoa, that's none of my business. You're right. It's none of your business, right? But if it's happening under your roof, in your household, with the people you live with, it is your business, right? Yeah, it's your business. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 here, he says, it is actually reported that there is immorality, listen to this, among you, and immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles. You see the language there? He contrasts and compares among you, among the Gentiles. Two different communities. And he goes on to say, the behavior that's reported among you should be different than the behavior that's reported among the Gentiles. Okay? And he says, but it's not. It's not any different. It's the same. And this is a problem. So there's sexual sin that's happening in the body of Christ. In verse 2, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. He's saying, but I've decided, even though I'm not there in person, I've decided already they should be removed. I don't, that is, I don't have to be there and know all the ins and outs of the situation. All I have to know is that there's sin that's not been repented of, it's not been confessed, it's not been dealt with, so I already know what to do. And that is to remove that sinful person from that community and, and leave them to the community of the world so that Satan can destroy their flesh, so that they can be redeemed and brought back if they so choose, willingly to do so. So there's this in and out language. We see it again in verse 12 and 13, if you see it there in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 1, 12 and or 5, 12 and 13. He says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? He's like, what do I have to do with the community of the world? I don't judge them. I don't just randomly go to my neighbor, you know, somebody lives down my street and say, hey, you need to stop. You know, whatever. No, I don't do that. That's not my ministry. My ministry is to the church. He says, and to my church family. He says, don't judge. He says, do you not judge those who are within the church? Verse 13. But those who are outside, God judges them. And then he says, remove the wicked man from yourselves, from among yourselves. So you have that among language, in and out language of 1 Corinthians 5. And Hebrews chapter 10. You might be familiar with the encouragement, the command from God in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, since we have confidence because of what Jesus has done for us, we enter into the holy place. We can have communion with God. Since this is true about us, let us, let us draw near, verse 22, with a sincere heart, full of assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate who? One another. Let us consider, let us think about 
Let us dwell upon how to stimulate one another. You know what we think about most in the American church, American Christianity today? We only think about stimulating who? Me. I go to church. I'm not going to be stimulated. What are they going to say? What are they going to do? What are they going to have for me? And there's so many churches. I mean, they're everywhere. You can, you can go from church to church and find something different, something new. Man, this church has this, and I like that. This one has this, and oh, I really like that. And you kind of play the matchmaking game. You know, well, which one has the most things for me? That's not what the Bible says you are to consider. The Bible says you are to consider how to stimulate one another. How can you bless the people in the room? How can you stimulate others to love and good deeds? Verse 25, not forsaking. This is the, he goes to the basic component of this. What does it mean? Number one, to, be, to stimulate other believers to love and good deeds? Just show up. Be there for one another. Be there. For one another, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. It's not the habit of some, it's the habit of many. And it becomes a habit over time to just appear when it's convenient. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That means you should not go to church, gather for worship and for prayer less often. But more often, the more you anticipate the coming of Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. God has placed you in the body as He desired. That's how He describes the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the church, is like a human body. And He has put every individual in the body, attached it to one another in a way that He desired. So a disciple is someone who's a born-again believer who is following Jesus with God's holy people and with souls and eternity in mind. The word that's used many times in the New Testament and in the places that we're going to look at for soul is the word suke or psyche. Another word that's used is the word pneuma. Literally in the Old Testament, in the Greek form of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the, the word that's used is pneuma because it, it, it basically described the breath. The breath. You've heard of pneumonia. That's in the condition of the lungs, right? Pneuma is the breath. And the, if there was breath in a living being, it was animated with the life of God. To be created in God's image in humanity. God breathed life into us. And so disciples are not just people who are following Jesus, but we're following Jesus with God's holy people with a priority of human souls and eternity. That is, we're prioritizing those things above all the temporal Things. In Luke chapter 12. Verse 
verses 13 through 21. Jesus is dealing with a couple of brothers. One comes to him and says, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. So this guy was, he was worried about what was going to happen to him in the future and his brother in the future. He wanted to make sure he got his cut. Right? And Jesus says, Who, who made me an arbiter or a judge over you? Why are you coming to me with this problem? And then he goes into this just general teaching about guarding ourselves from greed. Verse 15 says, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. Do not... He says, For, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Stuff. Verse 16. And then he told them a parable saying, The land of a certain rich man was very, very productive. He began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Notice the amount of times my shows up here. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Jesus says, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We learn here that souls can be selfish. The soul can be selfish. Even the Christian soul can be selfish, can worry about self and me and number one and what do I get? We can be distracted and only thinking about the things of this world and not really have souls in view or eternity in view, but just the here and now. We also find out from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, that souls are under threat of war. Peter says, I urge you as strangers and aliens to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the suke, the soul. There are things in the world that are pulling and tugging and distracting you from keeping the main thing the main thing. And that is, you're going to meet Jesus one day and you're going to give account for your soul. Your soul is all that matters. Other people's souls are all that matters. They might look different, they might act different, they might put on a show, but every human creating the image of God has a soul. We also learn from Mark chapter 8 about the soul and discipleship. Jesus talks about what it means to gain and to lose in the kingdom of God. We see this in the context of where He asks His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In verse 27, people give, disciples give different answers and finally Peter says, Thou art the Christ. Now in verse 31, He begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days later, rise again. What a shift. 
You are the one. You're the Messiah. You're the King. You're the greatest. Hashtag Jesus. And then Jesus drops this bombshell. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be delivered up. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. He was stating the matter plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. No, Lord, may it never be. It's not what I had planned. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, verse 33 says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but on man's. And he summoned the multitude with the disciples. He said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. Verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits his soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The answer is nothing. Nothing is worth your soul this side of heaven. Not a single thing. Jesus is all. A disciple is someone who is a born-again believer following Jesus with God's holy people with souls and eternity in mind. And it's a challenge to keep souls and eternity in mind, isn't it? That's why we need each other. That's why we need to be in community and in fellowship with each other. So a few questions. Number one, most important this morning, have you believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Have you been born again? Are you living out your faith in close relationship to a church family? Are you doing that? You need to be. You must be. That's God's will for you as a Christian. Have you made your soul and the souls of others your main priority in life? What adjustments? What changes do you need to make this morning? Should you make this morning? Maybe the Holy Spirit's already speaking to your heart. Say, you haven't been prioritizing souls in eternity. You're distracted. You're too busy. You put a lot on your plate. You're focusing on the wrong goals. What adjustments do you need to make? Let's pray.